Today's scripture reading is from 1 Kings 18, verses 21 through 39. In addition to your own Bible, you may find it on the back side of your message notes or beginning on page number 258 in your worship Bible. Please follow along as I read. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning till noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This is the word of God. Before we move into our message, I want to take a moment to say a prayer because uh, some of you I'm sure have not heard, but others of you had, that there was a, uh, a real uh, awful act of violence that occurred in Florida during the night when last I heard at least 50 people were killed and another 50 or more were um, injured. And uh, at the, the last that I heard, there wasn't much that could be said about it other than that this was a terrible act. Um, and I think it would be just really uh, oh, appropriate for us to say a moment of prayer. Will you do that with me? Father, whenever something like this happens in our country, it feels like it happens to us, our brothers and our sisters and, and our family. We don't know how it is or why it is that this senseless act of violence occurred, but we know that there are a lot of grieving, grieving families right now with grief hard for us to fathom. And so I pray that you would bring comfort and encouragement to families who will be burying their dead and all the difficulties that that involves. I pray that you would bring encouragement to those who are investigating these, uh, this crime to figure out exactly what happened and why and how it all took place. I understand that the person uh, who perpetrated the crime was killed himself. But there's always so much more to the story and then lots of wonderings about what might have happened. And we don't know, but you know, Lord. And uh, we just pray for your comfort and encouragement and for your wisdom uh, for the people of Florida as they figure out what to do about this. So we commit these families to you and we thank you that even though we... Uh, our hands are really tied. Your hands are not. And you are able to communicate your love and your uh, comfort to families that are grieving today. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I really appreciate, Ruth, reading that lengthy story for you. It's one that a number of you will be familiar with, and others will you say, of the, you will say, did he really say your God is away relieving himself? Did you see that? And yes, it's in there, and it's kind of a part of the story. It's the great story of the confrontation between Elijah and the God of Israel versus Ahab and the gods and the prophets Baal. And there was a tremendous national crisis, if you will, that was going on in the nation of Israel. We're going to talk about that today, but I was especially struck by the opening verses which I had uh, Ruth read for you. When, Isaiah, when Elijah said to, um, uh, to all the people gathered there before him these words, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. A challenging statement. All right, time to make up your mind. If God is God, the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, 
follow him. But the people were unwilling to make up their mind. That is a challenging question which Elijah the prophet brought to that generation, but it is also a challenging question which God brings to us in our generation. Elijah knew something that we often don't. We must make a choice. Either the Lord is God, and we must therefore follow Him, or He is not God, and then all bets are off. That's the truth of the matter that Elijah wants them to see and that God wants us to see. Either the God that is spoken of in the Old Testament is the God of reality, and as we who are followers of Jesus say, uh, understand that that God came and joined us in this our humanity in the person of Jesus as a fulfillment of that long story that had begun with Abraham. Either that is the true story of the world, or it's a fake, and it should not be followed. You see, the Christian gospel is not simply one of ethics. These are some good ways to live. If you try them, your life will be better. The Christian story is meant to be the true story about how the world is put together. True, like walking off of a building, you encounter the law of gravity. (laughs) You see? True in that way, in terms of its effects, matter. It's not up to me to decide whether gravity works or not. It works if I believe it. It works if I don't. It doesn't. I can know people who do that end up dead in the bottom of (laughs) skyscrapers, don't they? They have walked in the face against the true reality of life, and they've paid an ultimate price. In the same way, either the God of the Bible, Old and New Testaments, is the God of true reality, and I must follow Him, or else I must disobey Him at great cost to myself. That's the actual truth of the matter. But look at what the people did. It says the people did not answer Him a word. They stood there. Why did they stand there? Why were they unwilling? Why were they so unwilling to say, yes, Baal, or yes, Lord? (laughs) I think they probably thought they could have it both ways, right? Just like you and me. We want God when it's convenient, when He makes sense to us, when we understand Him, But we also kind of want to have a little on the side just in case. And we think that perhaps by not making a final decision, we are keeping all of our options open. But one of the true realities of life is this. Indecision is decision. Indecision is decision. While I was deciding whether or not to go to college, I was not a student in college. My indecision was de facto decision. While I was deciding whether or not to marry the woman with whom I have spent 36 years of my life, praise be to God, I was not married to her yet. That indecision was decision. And while the people of Israel were standing there, arms crossed, saying, hmm, hmm, can I have it both ways? While they were standing there with indecision, they were by their indecision making a decision not to follow God. This is a powerful, powerful story that teaches us some very important things about what it means to make a decision to follow 
God. This powerful little interchange between Elijah and the people of Israel illustrates an important truth for us to consider today. Ultimately, we must decide whom we will serve. And until we decide we're going to serve God, we're not. We must decide whom we will serve. Until we decide to serve God's God, we are serving other gods. And so let's take a look at this important story found here in the book of First Kings. We're going to look at the context of the story, the challenge of the story, the confrontation in the story, and the conclusion of the story. And hopefully in the midst of all this, God will allow us to move forward in our relationship with Him. First of all, the context of Mount Carmel. The context of Mount Carmel. The context was this, national idolatry, national idolatry. I didn't have, I printed on the backside of your notes, but I didn't have room to, I didn't give it to, to, uh, uh, to, uh, to, to Ruth to read for you. But at the very beginning of the story, we have Elijah coming up to Ahab, the king, and Ahab saying it to Elijah, is it you, the troubler of Israel? In other words, are you the guy causing all the trouble in this land? He was the one calling the people to the God of Israel. And Ahab said, is it you, the trouble of Israel? To which Elijah says, I'm not the one who's given Israel trouble. You are the one giving Israel trouble. Well, what had happened? Well, Ahab was one of the kings in the northern kingdom. So let's back up a little bit and pick up this story. I'll do it as briefly as I, uh, as I can. Last time we got together on a Sunday, we were talking about Solomon the king, the son of David, the great wise man. And as you read through 1 Kings this week, if you read with us, you discover that Solomon led the people to uh, great material wealth, but their spiritual health declined even as the material wealth uh, increased. A little bit like America, well, we might say, right? And Solomon himself had found that his own relationship with God had dwindled during the time, and ultimately, he began to follow after other gods. This wise man made some very foolish choices. So, at the end of his life, the kingdom was torn away from Solomon, and most of the tribes went with another man named Jeroboam, and Solomon's son, Rehoboam, got only the two tribes the, the, uh, down at the, uh, the southern part, the tribe of Judah, the, the main tribe. Uh, that, that and so the kingdom separated into two. It was like a civil war that happened between the north and the south, literally, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And so we have at that point a division in the kingdom. There's the northern kingdom often referred to as Israel, even though Israel technically refers to the whole thing, Israel, and the southern kingdom often referred to as Judah. And so there were kings in both of them. They would fight with each other half the time, and sometimes they'd fight with one another or for, alongside one another, but there was conflict. And in the northern kingdom, which is where this story occurs, there were kings, but none of them were good. All of them were bad. In the southern kingdom, a few of them were good. And so that kingdom lasted uh, a couple hundred years longer there than the northern kingdom. And I don't remember the date exactly, but I think it was 920 B. This is the first we have a lizard in church today. You said, yeah, we all feel like lizards today. It's summertime. Uh, don't worry. He won't hurt you, all right? The northern kingdom had no good kings. And so one of them, and the worst of them, was this king Ahab, the son of Amri. 
And he was an awful king. That's why, uh, you know, uh, Herman Melville probably chose him as the protagonist for his great novel, Moby Dick, Ahab, his vengeance against God, right? Remember that story? You read it? Yeah, of course you did. Um, in any case, Ahab was this terrible king. He married a woman named Jezebel. You ever heard of Jezebel? You heard that phrase, Jezebel? That's her. She's the woman. And, she's the, and she was from the pagan gods. And so when she married Ahab, she encouraged him, not blaming her because others had done it as well, to make, make the worship of Baal the national religion. So there was national idolatry, sanctioned idolatry that was taking place in that country. There were tremendous corruption that was going on, and so God began to raise up prophets to call the people back to him. Among them were this man named Elijah, and then later his protege, Elisha, who comes a little bit later in this story. The corruption was so bad that they began to promote Baal worship as the national religion. And, and, uh, and so Elijah was the prophet, one of the prophets who were who sent by God to call the people back to their back to God. Okay? And so Elijah, as we first meet him, comes in. And essentially, he says, there's going to be a drought for three years. For three years, no rain. Now, this is bad because, of course, everyone needs water, and theirs is a desert somewhat like ours. But it's doubly bad because Baal, among other things, was considered the storm god, the storm god, the one who brought rain and fertility. So it's as if, I'm going to say Isaiah by accident, but I mean Elijah. It's as if Elijah is saying, you think Baal controls the rain? You can pray to him all you want, but for three years, it's not going to rain. It's not going to rain. And then Elijah ran away and went off and hid, and God took care of him for a few years, and God used a widow. But you can read about that story if you haven't already in a few chapters. She took care of him, and he took care of her, and and he helped her son as well. So finally, now after three years, he's been absent. Nobody knows where he is. He returns back, and he finds another prophet named Obadiah, and he says, Obadiah, go find Ahab for me. And Obadiah says, yeah, right. If you send me, send me to go find Ahab, I'm going to go find Ahab, and he's going to say, uh, I, I'm going to say, Elijah wants to see you, then I'm going to come back, and you'll be gone, and I'll, you'll, you'll just vanish like you always seem to do, and I'm not going to do it. And finally, Elijah encourages him, assures him that he'll be there. So Ahab and Obadiah meet one another, and that's where that conversation first begins. Where the Lord said, where, where, uh, uh, where it says, and Elijah came near to, uh, excuse me, and Ahab came near to, uh, let me find the text real quickly. Um, when Ahab saw Elijah, this is verse 17, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, gather And send all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Wow. Isaiah is saying, I want to get together. Get the whole nation together on Mount Carmel. Get those prophets of Baal. Get those prophets, prophetesses of Asherah. That was the female god, probably. And they were eating at Jezebel's table, which means they were under the employ of the government. They were government-sanctioned as well. And so he decided it's time to have it out. If it's the Lord, let him be the one who shows himself. And if it's Baal, Let him be the one who shows himself. So that's the context. Number two, the challenge on Mount Carmel. 
the challenge on Mount Carmel. As I already indicated, they have a great challenge on Mount Carmel, but there is, the challenge is necessary because there is what I call national indecision. People want it both ways. They don't mind having God of Israel around. They just want him interfering with God of Baal. I mean, can't we have separate domains? Can't we have it all figured out? And you can keep your own private spirituality the way that you want, but don't influence someone else, and that way it can work, you see? Uh, some ideas never die, do they? Yeah. And so that's why uh, I, uh, Elijah says to them, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? I love the way that's phrased. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? You see, it's one thing to walk with two legs, but both legs need to walk the same direction. If you want to walk in two different directions, you are not going to be able to do that very long, right? And that's what he's saying. These horses are not going the same way. <laughs> the girl that's trying to ride two horses can only do it if they're both going together. These are not going together. You're limping. You've got to make up your mind. This is the challenge which Elijah is giving to them. And so um, he confronts both his generation and ours. As I said, they needed to make a choice. We need to make a choice. So there's this powerful interchange between Elijah and the people of Israel. And it, as I said already, sounds so very similar to us today. You know, I mean, we often think we're very wise when we say, well, you can have your beliefs, and I can have my beliefs, and why should anybody force their beliefs on someone else? Have you ever heard that phrase? When you, when you say, why should anyone force… You, when you say, I don't think anybody should force their beliefs on anybody else, you are saying, you should believe what I believe. Right? I believe you should not try to force anyone's belief on yourself. Well, what, are you what am I trying to do but force my belief on you when I say it? Do you see that? Everyone has an opinion. Everyone thinks their opinion is right. You can't get around it. Everyone has an idea. There is, no, uh, there is nonsense to the idea to say, well, just, they're just all religions are the same. That assumes that I know everything in the world about every religion in the world and that, therefore, I've got the right opinion. No, everyone has an opinion. We need to make the decision. Will we follow the God of the Bible or will we not? Will we follow the way of, of this world or the way of the Scriptures? You see, this is the challenge which is made there on Mount Carmel. And so let's go on thirdly to the next thing, the confrontation itself. The confrontation on Mount Carmel, and that is what I call a national contest. I wanted to say smackdown. But I'm not a WWE fan, so I didn't want to say that because I don't really know what a smackdown is. But in any case, a national contest. Some of you will say, well, yeah, you should have said that. So I said it just in case. Anyway, there's a national contest, mano a mano, the God of Baal and the God of Israel. The God of Israel has one representative. His name is Elijah. And the God of Baal has 450 of them. And the people of Israel are in the stands waiting to see who's going to win this battle. Well, you heard, you heard uh, Ruth read that Scripture for you. And so what basically the summary of that idea is this. We're going to have a fight. We're going to start two bonfires. You guys ask your God to start your bonfire, and I'll ask my God to start my bonfire. And verse 24, the God who answers by fire, he is God. 
All right, so you saw the story, uh, the story as it was taking place. Uh, Elijah says, you guys go first, all right? You guys go first. And so they start to pray for the God of Baal, the storm God, if you will, to rain down fire on their, on their altar, to rain down fire on that altar. But then again, it doesn't seem to happen like they hope. And so you already heard her, uh, heard her read it for you, but it's kind of funny to read it. And it says in verse 26, and they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal. It should be Baal, but we say Baal usually. Baal from morning until noon. Hours they're going, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar they had made. You know, some say they danced around the altar they had made, okay? Um, they limped through. And, and at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud for it, for he is a god. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awake, and he's taunting them while they're getting more and more aggravated, more and more. And they just think, well, maybe what God wants, what the gods want from me is better worship, better, uh, more activity. They begin to dance even, even harder. It says, and, they, and then they begin to cry aloud. They think maybe what God wants from me is just louder cries, more self-abnegation. Ultimately, they start to, as it says, cut themselves after the custom with swords and lenses. Maybe if I bleed a little bit, the gods, the harder I suffer, the more those gods, you know, a lot of people think that's what God wants of us, right? He wants me to do my little jig. If I do it just right, the rain will come. If the rain didn't come, I didn't dance well enough, right, Bill? <laughs> you know, or I need, if it doesn't, then I just yell a little louder, have a little bit more emotion, uh, uh, fast a little bit longer, uh, cut myself a little bit deeper. All these things we do to try to get our gods to, fall, to, to, to answer our prayers. Yeah, we think they were primitive, of course, by doing that, but let's face it, the gods that we follow in our culture today do not they have great expectations of performance if your God is the God of success? Do you not have to perform very well to win that God's favor? If your God is the God of material things, do you not have to make great sacrifices to give that God's favor? Do you not sometimes sacrifice our own children on the altar of our own personal success? Have not we done that? Have not others, have we seen others do that? Whose lives seem on the outside to be doing just great, but inwardly their lives are falling apart? These things happen. We can sacrifice uh, so much. How many times have we spent money we do not have to buy things we do not need to impress people who don't even like us? How much have we done that? Yes, we're not so very different than they were back then. They are performing for their gods, and Elijah was mocking, was mocking them uh, mocking them for it. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their own custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out from them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering, the oblation. That's three o'clock. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Yes, there was this great national contest on Mount Carmel when the people were trying to win the favor of their gods, thinking that they just sacrificed, suffered, did enough, maybe that God would respond to them. And so we can't help but ask ourselves, have we ever been guilty of dancing before the wrong gods? 
of sacrificing before the wrong gods, of thinking that there are sometimes gods out there who are just waiting for us to suffer a little bit more. Yeah. No, that was the confrontation that occurred there on Mount Carmel, the national contest. And then we see ultimately and finally the conclusion on Mount Carmel, Carmel, the conclusion of Mount Carmel. Let's see how it goes. Then Elijah said to the, all the people, and see, the, the, the writer is giving us a, a huge difference. He's painting this one great frenetic, out-of-control, emotional, slashing picture, uh, anarchy, if you will. And then clearly it's such a different voice in verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And now we see he's taking an old altar that's been their part of their heritage, the truth of their own history, not a brand new set of sticks and, or rocks that he put up, but, then, but rather this old artwork. And he begins to repair it. And I can just imagine it's 3 o'clock, all this time has been going on, and he just starts to work. And people are wondering, what's going on? What's going on? And then he goes and he finds, it says, 12, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, Israel shall be your name. And there is a message even in this because he is speaking and doing this act in front of a tribe, a, a nation which has split into, into two. There are 10 tribes up there, not 12. But by picking up the 12 stones from the 12 tribes, he was reminding them of that great covenant of faithfulness that God had established with them, not just with them in the north, but with everyone together, those 12 stones together. And with the stones, verse 32, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made, and he goes on, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of wood. I don't know what seas of wood are, but a large trench around the altar. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And then they must have been shocked when he said this. Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and the wood. What? What's he doing? He's putting water on the altar before the… And they've been in a drought for three years. You know how precious water was? Well, he does it not once, but not twice. And then a third time, he has utterly and thoroughly drenched that water so that the moat is filled with water. And then it says… Uh, verse 36, and at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. God vindicated Himself that day, not by slashing and dancing and human capitulation and all this sort of thing, but rather simply by obedience to His Word of faithfulness to His covenant people. And, of course, we know that that story concludes ultimately 
with Jesus who came down on this earth. And when Jesus was on his way towards uh, Jerusalem, he said, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. So we see Jesus is talking about this great fire as well. But listen to what Jesus says. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And here we see that Jesus, and I can develop this more worthy a little time, Jesus is talking about a great fire which is going to come, and we can't help but be reminded of that great fire of Elijah, except that in this case, who is going to get burned in the fire? Jesus. Jesus. I will be baptized, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He's talking about his own death. He's talking, he's pointing towards another mountain, not the Mount Carmel, but the Mount Calvary, where Jesus himself will climb on an altar, a cross, we would say, and he will lay his arms out, and he will accept in his own body the judgment of God. He is talking about his own death, but that, that ju- when that judgment comes, it will come down on him. Fire will rain down. It should come down on the people around the mountain. Instead, it comes down on the Son of God at the top of the mountain. Jesus came to take that fire. You see, we serve a God who does not expect us to perform for him, but rather a God who has already performed for us. He came to our rescue. And so I ask you that question that was asked at the very beginning. Who will you serve? How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. And don't do what those people did when they did not answer Him a word. In a moment, we will have the Lord's table available for you, and it will remind us that the one who got cut and the one who got slashed and the one whose blood was spilt was not the prophets around, but it was the Son of God whose blood was spilt, His bread, His body for us, His blood for us. If you believe in the truth of God's coming through Jesus Christ, Surrender your heart to Him. And if you've allowed any other truth to squeeze its way into your life, put it away, cast it out, and remind yourself that I am who I am because of the God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Let's have prayer as we close. Lord Jesus, we are so very, very thankful that the confrontation between the gods of this earth and the God of Israel is one which has already been completed. And it was pointed to perhaps there on that mountain in Carmel. But it was completed that day on that mountain in Calvary when Jesus gave his life for us. We give him thanks. We give you thanks. Thank you that you are the one who took our sin, who took our burden, who took our shame. You're the one whose blood was spilt, whose body was broken. Help us to affirm the grace and love in that story so that we can serve that God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.